This episode of Strange Assembly is brought to you by www.l5rsearch.com. L5rsearch.com is a comprehensive online L5R card database with tools to assist in optimizing your decks, proxying cards, or simply finding out about unusual cards. Once you know what you need, www.l5rshop.com puts cards in your hands quickly and economically. This is Strange Assembly episode 140, Donny Boy. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is James Donathorn Tate. How you doing? Hey, Chris. Life is good. Thank you. That, that's good. I got to check, though, because I wouldn't want you to get distracted during the recording. Uh-huh. The World Cup is done for the day, right? There's not going to be any... That's right. It's done for tomorrow as well. Games pick up on Saturday. Yes, minus people who bite other players. Well, indeed, yes. <laughs> <laughs> he was clearly very hungry. I mean, it's a long match. You, know? <laughs> you get a bit peckish, you know. Absolutely. But this is, uh, as I said, this is Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. Today, Donnie and I are going to be talking about the coming storm, uh, the most recent expansion for the Legend of the Five Rings CCG. If you are lucky, then this recording won't be like after Kote season by the time you hear it, but you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Don, Donnie's been traveling, I'm going to be traveling. We're, uh, we'll, we'll see if uh, how okay my family is with me sitting on a laptop in the corner of the room editing a podcast instead of paying attention to them. <laughs> so... The coming storm, we have one weekend under our belt. I don't know how much one weekend ever really tells you. Phoenix won a Kote. Phoenix won a Kote. And Dragon won two. Hooray! It's all downhill from here. Well, that's our second win for Phoenix in the season. So uh, both are with on our decks. I'm very happy that we've, uh, we've got some results on the board. So thank you, James, for the recent one. And uh, we're, all, we're all happy about that one. Yes, yeah, that was always nice. Unfortunately, yeah. I, I have to admit, I'm still. I, I cannot shake my disappointment that the overall point totals have been not higher for Cote season. So we've got people that, okay, you've got your 250 points for your take a hostage prize. Can you get up to 350 so you can win a duel instead of can you hit your 500 to get a, mm-hmm. a huge victory of some sort? We're, we're only going to get a couple of those. And then, of course, once we get those, I'll immediately have to switch to, please don't let my clan be on the receiving end. Please don't <laughs> let my clan be on the receiving end. I, I think you're probably okay. And unless the unicorn decide they really want to, to go for you, yeah, you're probably not going to be a target. Yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, Somebody's like, I, you know what? We haven't read about that Shakae and Elise thing for like a year, <laughs> but I don't have anybody better to be pissed at. So. <laughs> uh... Yeah, sort of what Crane are definitely going to have that. I don't think that's going to go well for the Mantis. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think that's probably going to be Mantis they get for that. Yeah, that that. I I mean, I guess right. There's some anti. There's some Scorpion feuding stuff. A Scorpion Alliance for old opponents as well. I can certainly see them going for Scorpion Alliance, but. Yeah, well, I don't think that they would go for Lion because they're too friendly. They, the, the player base really likes the whole Feather and Claw thing, even though if, I don't know how many players have been around long enough to remember that title. But there's at least that tension between the Crane and Scorpion in the coming storm. Yep. It may depend on if if they get the actual coming storm fictions out 
and make the the crane scorpion thing nasty enough i guess they could try to change it but i think that there's too much pent-up desire for some more definitive something mm-hmm. in their favor in the the crane mantis thing so to some extent i feel like the biggest question is whether or not the not not who the crane will pick to go after but are the crane going to hit 750 and if the crane hits 750 will they just try to kill the mantis clan champion rather than get a, a win yeah I can certainly see Mantis players getting quite upset if that's the direction it goes in, because you know, last season, the season before that, Mantis were pretty dominant, um, and, Crane <laughs> and then this year, Crane's dominant ones, and, and Mantis are nowhere, well, they're somewhere, but they're nowhere near Crane. And so, you know, this is the season that counts for actually, sort, you know, card results counting as, as victories. It, yeah, yeah, whereas, yeah, last, last year doing well counted as losing. Mm-hmm. I, I'm well aware of that, yep. <laughs> Yes, you're aware of that. Although I would note that that hasn't actually happened yet, right? Yes. That seems to be joining the general pile of let's have a a sort of general mega game or semi mega game ish kind of process that we don't actually know how it is we're going to execute. <laughs> so it just kind of doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, one of the trends that we've definitely seen during Ivory is. The story team and the you know, game design and the uh, tournament design all being more joined up. And that's a good thing to see. Yes, I was just whining about that on the uh, on the dragon boards. I, I think it was sort of prompted by, yeah, I know that they're so shorthanded, but it's like magic gets a fiction every week now, <laughs> and, and and the L5R story team has been so shorthanded that we're getting a, a fiction every three weeks or every month or something. It's Ah, come on! Uh-huh. Unleash the spooky! Uh, he's working the novel, you know? Takes a while to build a novel. He's working the novel. Sean's got his own RPG company now. Spooky does a bunch of graphic design work on the L5R RPG and on... and for... oh, Kyodai Games, uh, I think is Sean's company, so... Plus, this is not his day job, either. Sure. And now... The story team has those hordes and hordes of, of of applications to join the story team yep. to work through. I, I almost want to say there's there's some people on the, the forums who kind of say something every once in a while, like, so when are we going to find out? And I, I'm almost like, I'm pretty sure that by asking when you're going to find out, you're guaranteeing that the answer is no. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's not necessarily how the process works, but I think it just might. Well, you know, there's an element to which you have to work as a team, you know, as part of this stuff, and uh, impatience is not generally considered a good, a good virtue for teamworking. Yeah, yeah. My my contribution to the process was not submitting anything. <laughs> Fiction, not my strong suit. I don't know. Pe- people read what I write on the website. Maybe there isn't much that's my strong suit, but it's definitely not fiction. But we have this coming storm set, so let's start out with the sensei, because... People have been waiting to see what the new sensei were going to be. Uh-huh. I think that overall, the reactions to the sensei were um, underwhelming. There was some support for Aranai sensei, and a nearly universal non-fodness from Tsukihime, ranging from, this is the worst card ever <laughs> printed, which is definitely not correct, to, this doesn't seem terrible, but I don't see how it ever gets played. You seem to be the most positive person about it. Have you actually been able to accomplish anything with it now that you've done deck building? 
Uh, so the most enjoyable deck I've got, Sikihime Sensei, is a Crane Honor deck that imports the Spider Guy who discards a card to gain honor when he enters play. Now he's loyal, so you can't normally have him in your deck, but uh, with Sikihime Sensei you can do that. Um, and he just adds a little bit of acceleration to the Crane Quarter Honor deck, uh, and means that, that can cross a turn earlier than it would otherwise do. So Crane Quarter Honor with imported Spider Dude, and then you throw in you know, a couple of Unicorn guys for more gold and... Uh, build it out that way, but uh, the key card you're getting there is the spider guy who you wouldn't otherwise be able to include. Yeah, it's interesting to me at least how narrow the distance with Tsukihime seems to be between borderline to unplayable as compared to broken. Like, I, I, you saw people on the forums making suggestions like, well, <laughs> if you if you took away the gold and took away that and I'm like, then she'd be broken. Oh, well, what if <laughs> What if you just did this? Well, that maybe doesn't necessarily look broken at first glance, but then you think about it, and every single Dishonor or Honor deck would play her. Every single one of them, because there would immediately be no downside. The bonus that she's giving is so big that you need the gold penalty or something to, to offset it. You look what she does. The very simple version, let's look at that card. It says, your stronghold makes less gold, and you get to make other things cheaper. Out-of-clan guys, now cheaper for you than they would have been otherwise. Yeah. So it's, it's an economic cost and an economic benefit. And people run numbers and go, well, if you use sort of four times during the game, you saved eight gold, but how much gold have you cost by having a three-gold box rather than a four-gold box? That sort of stuff. And, and, and you know, to, to a point, that's a reasonable thing to say. It doesn't consider the fact that there's a lot of courtiers out there that make gold, which therefore means that your overall economy is strengthened by them. If you're playing Crane, for example, you can play your three tokens and your um, Yashinko you can play already. You can throw in another two or three unicorn guys who also make gold, which gives you that bit of extra liability in terms of being able to do the same thing every game and make sure you have access to the same amount of gold. Consistency is generally underrated in other decks, and Tsukihima Sensei decks are very consistent in terms of how they, uh, how they develop. Mm. See, I think I, I, I rate my consistency pretty highly. I, apparently, I've concluded <laughs> that from the fact that I have I seem to have far more love for four for four holdings. I saw your comments in the uh, analysis of top two decks. Yeah. yeah, okay, I wasn't sure if you had read that. Yeah, than anyone else does. Right? My, I was sort of like, I need a reason to not play Nexus <laughs> and Productive One. Yeah, uh, my, my buddy Will, who's made top four in each of the three coaches he's been to this year, playing Crane Scouts. Now he's playing a four for four scheme. Um not playing Marketplace, you know. Yes. Buy four gold turn one, eight gold turn two. If you've got a bookkeeper out, then you're a bit lucky and you've got a little bit more uh, production available there. But, yeah, his deck does the same thing every time and uh, he's done very well with it. Yeah, it's, it's the, well, maybe I miss on a little bit of explosive starts, but you can now effectively play with 12 4 for 4 holdings, which is an, an immensely high probability that you. Exit turn two with 16 gold. I mean, a- almost every time. You know, you, you're going to have a little bit more in there. It's similarly cloth market. I, unicorn players seem not terribly enthused about cloth market. If I was them, I'd be so ecstatic about cloth. Well, well there was one vocal guy not very enthused by cloth market, but I think the <laughs> action of unicorn players I've spoken to is, uh, yes, please, I'll have five. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... Uh... I don't know. So well, let's let's interrupt that for a second. Then and let me go back and, and ask you if you. So you read that the the top two deck list thing. I mean, was there? Did you find that to be something of value? Was there any anything that you would have been looking for? 
out of those numbers to crunch them that I wasn't doing, or...? I don't think I'm really the target audience for that, as one of the people who had a deck in that uh, in that collection. Because what we're really doing there is we're trying to find what are people playing that's doing well that people might not have thought of. And you're like, I already thought of this, guys. No, I... Well, you, 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 the things you found in there are, are uh, good and valid observations. <laughs> so some of them are fairly subtle. Uh, in fact, some of them are things we talked about last time I was talking to you on this uh, this podcast. You know, the thing about movement tricks being important and the whole skirmish to avoid losing battles. You know, a lot of the cards that you uh, you highlighted there are cards that do exactly that, that let you control who's in the battle and therefore you know, manage your, uh, your potential losses and uh, make sure that your opponent doesn't steamroll you in a single battle. Which, again, is just about good players being able to play, have more options available to them to play things that will make it hard to beat them. Uh, a lot of the cards in that in that list help with that um, that strategy. And there's some very obvious ones as well. I mean, Settling Gathering, for example. <laughs> one of the more common fake cards that you, you, you identified there. You what know, a no shock. One by that, indeed. Um, <laughs> but some of the stuff about the you know, prevalence of sort of even sort of fallback being in there, that sort of thing. You know, advanced warning, no one's surprised by that one. But fallback, is that is that really a, that, that common in top two decks? Well, yes, it is. It's quite a subtle card, that one. It's not an immediate one you look at and go, yeah, that's super strong. I can have six of them. I'm trying to remember, I think that that, if you took out the pre-errata crane decks, I think that might have been even more common percentage-wise, because I think that that's, there's much more of that near the end of the season. The, mm-hmm. I mean, the crane decks are like, I've got the sensei. You know, I've, I've already got plenty of, of movement, so they actually have a little bit less movement than like the, the end of the season unicorn decks were. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so there was one card that wasn't in that list that actually surprised me it wasn't there, and that's Reprisal. Actually, in hindsight, I probably should have been playing Reprisal in my deck, so you know, it was the second coat of the season. I hadn't really twigged how valuable that card would be. But in an environment where going first is really important, and uh, you know, all the stats we've got say that it is, Reprisal is something that helps you negate that going first advantage. Yeah, that was... Were there maybe eight decks out of the 78 of those 78 military decks that had Reprisal in them? I don't think it was even 10, but it was down there yep. as far as that went. But I don't know. So the other sensei, the more regarded sensei, I, I guess, is Aaron I sensei. You get inspired leadership. That seems like a really good tactician card. I think I'm kind of meh on this one. There's probably going to be something really good with it at some point. Well, well the best card with it is Death of the Winds. Toolbox, any card in your fate day, any non-unique battle strategy. That's only as strong as your other fake cards are, of course. Um, but there's one type of deck that has some really strong red cards, and that's dealing. Being able to fetch your command at times or weakness exposed on a four focus value strategy itself means that Aranai Sensei and dealing uh, go very nicely together. I know Will's updated his Mantis Ogre deck to run Aranai Sensei and do all that, that sort of stuff. He was playing that in your lens last weekend. Yeah, inspired leadership is nice, and some decks which have strong abilities in their guys can definitely get value out of that. But uh, I think the whole dueling plus uh, toolboxing uh, is probably the uh, the strongest application of Aranai. I was looking at inspired leadership just because it was another thing in the trying to tie it into something else in the the set. But yeah, I was I I was like sort of looking at the clans that are are available to it, and I kind of wonder how much that the penalty of that minus one family honor might vary depending on where you are. Like it's so. Right, Ogre Dueling, yeah, I wonder how. Uh, on the one hand, like that could possibly make you go second to Dishonor, which would normally not be good, except Mantis has 
one of the best, if not the best, B-side. So, just sort of the, you know, yep. like if you're Unicorn and you make yourself go second, well, there are a lot of to, to other Unicorn decks. There are a lot of other Unicorn decks out there. Yeah, and Unicorn, the other problem, of course, that they've got so many four-neuro four client personalities. I mean, that's why they're not using their current sensei, which is also really good. The fear effect on the current Akikaze sensei is, is a really strong effect, and having that available every battle is great. Unfortunately, it means that two-thirds of your personalities can't be played. <laughs> or at least aren't boxable anymore, um, which adds a lot of risk to them. So it you know, does definitely make an impact on your, uh, your deck construction options. Yeah. Probably the most, I think the most talked about, certainly moaned about card in the set is Cavalry Escort. So <laughs> do you, where do you fall on the, right, there seem to be some people who say, this is broken. There seem to be some people who say, well, it's okay. There are some people who say, well, it's only good against things like dishonor control and or on, and with what's in this set, military needed that kind of tool. So, Yeah, so, so if you take the ivory environment before TCS came along, the most effective way to defend, as in play honor or dishonor, was not to defend. You'd use things like uh, Kachiko, obviously. The event that uh, a mini Kachiko, Kachiko for one turn, a few of blood, and then things like, you know, tactical setback, and then effects that removed yourself, so um, oppression or strategic withdrawal, thoughtless sacrifice, where you, you show up briefly and then you're not there anymore, having removed some force on the other side of the board. So those sorts of cards were the most effective way of, of building an offensive deck. And Cavalry Escort basically says, well, you can do that all you like, and I'm going to take your province anyway. Um, because they're going to bring in another, typically sort of five, six, seven force off one action. It, it can be useful unopposed. And that's generally enough to, to take whatever province that uh, you're, you're going against. So a deck that tries to defend without defending uh, in the style that was effective in base ivory basically isn't, isn't viable anymore. Cavalry Escort, every time it's played, will take a province, and that's you know, that's not something you can easily come back from, and that's a matchup. So what Cavalry Escort does is it basically turns off the decks that don't stand against you, which from a design perspective, I can see why you want to do that. You know, The, the whole point of the uh, the game is to have a game against somebody, you know, play actions back and forth, and yeah, that's what will make makes good games. When one one side is turning up doing one action and then leaving the other player unable to do anything, that doesn't make such a, such a good game or such an entertaining game. The other card, of course, that supports the, that shift is Bountiful Fields, or whatever it's called, the uh, 4 for 4 farm that uh, negates all force penalties from the same source across multiple personalities. Uh-huh. So at the cost of 4 gold, because if you're bad, you can negate the impact of Kachiko for a turn on your personalities. Just so that you follow this, but there's other ways of dealing with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but that whole thing of just I'm just not going to stand in your way and you're going to bounce off my province becomes a much less strong means of defense uh, in, the, in the new set well you already had a, a way to negate the force penalty for your followers you just bow your family dojo well indeed or add the new terrain uh, bleak fields maybe bleak field, that's the one yes but uh, again pumps all your followers by one so uh, you've, already, you've already got plenty of ways of handling it on that side but, so. we talked about this on our uh, there's a lot of attractive-seeming Dishonor cards that are that are in this set, and uh, certainly people who thought Dishonor was going to take the universe by storm. That certainly didn't happen the first week of Kote, which doesn't mean it, it won't happen. But what do you think all of these new Dishonor personalities add up to in the TCS environment? The, the personalities add up to Yuzuki being a viable de- deck, I think. It might not quite be there yet, but it's... It's gone from basically zero to you know, a possible contender in one set, which is a very impressive uh, showing. On the Scorpion side, it was already a very competitive field for Scorpion Dishonor personalities. Ginger, recycling a, a political strategy, is probably the highlight of the uh, the new ones. 
and there's probably a couple of slots for him in the Scorpion to something like that. But the strategies, where the Scorpion in particular, but also a Growing Rift, are both really solid Dishonored strategies. The Growing Rift is, of course, more uh, of the sort of defense the cavalry escort just beats. Uh, the idea of, I'll split your army so you can't take my province, so I don't have to do as much to stop you. But it still has a built-in-on loss on it, and it's still a, a, a useful card for getting in people's way and uh, making it harder to take provinces and things. Um, where the Scorpion, of course, is just a bomb. Um, <laughs> anyone with reasonable personal armor, that's going to be an awful lot of armor loss from one card. Ugh. Yes. Yeah, way, way of the Scorpion seems very strong. I, I don't know. Yeah, Yoshiki Shire, or whatever. It's the sort of card I never really want to see. Mm-hmm. I think that the whole pick which way I screw you thing is just not pleasant for the other player ever. Yeah, it's historically been the Yuzuki thing, and I agree with you that having you know, the devil's choices is kind of frustrating as a player. Equally, the best use of Shara is to use her when you, you know, on your turn when your opponent doesn't build available to guarantee the honor loss, basically. And it's kind of funny, too, because I, I think that part of the idea when they started doing that was this notion of, oh, it'll make it feel more interactive because your opponent isn't just sitting there and taking it. They'll... Uh, you know, they'll be more involved, so they won't dislike it as much. And I think it's actually the exact opposite. <laughs> I think you're probably right on that. It's either the, the two choices are things that aren't strong enough that you play the card, or they're strong enough that they're both painful. And having a, a false choice between which alternative you want to use is a, just an unpleasant experience overall. Uh, let's see. What is interesting? Bayushi Akagi? Is it just me, or is he extremely good? <laughs> he's very efficient. The, the samurai deck has, has already got some pretty decent personalities in it, and he slots in nicely alongside that. Um, yeah, that, that stat line with that ability is a, a solid base to work from. Yeah, it feels like if you are a 3 force for 4 gold, you're playable. Possibly mm-hmm. good, but definitely playable. If you are 3 force for 5 gold and you have a real ability, you're good. Yeah. Okay, if it's only fear two, that's okay. That's not really going to get the job done. But these guys that are the, the four stabs, or if it's at least a fear three, or yeah, I mean, and the, the force things. I mean, the scorpion magistrate deck or samurai deck has already got a lot of people who hand out force things uh, with efficient force to all ratios and things. Uh, and of course, the sensei makes that even better. And that's that's a hard deck when it gets rolling. It obviously goes second, which is not a good thing in the current uh, military environment. But uh, yeah, it's a it's a scary thing to face once it gets rolling. Um, you really have to kill it fast, or it just destroys you. Yeah, well, you're a uh, you're a Phoenix player, so you could, you know, not, you know, primarily a Phoenix player. You play all sorts of things too. So, discovering the Anvil of Earth is better for you than anybody else because you can play a little few tricks with destroying your own terrains. And pretty much everybody has terrains in their deck now. Is it is it possible to just play with discovering the Anvil of Earth to? to be able to jack other people's terrains and bow their guy rather than just playing with your own terrains? The thing about that card is it looks great in principle, but there'll be times it's dead in your hand. Yep. And that's always a dangerous thing to have. Terrains are prevalent. Uh, pretty much everyone playing military is running some terrains, or defensive decks are playing terrains as well. So you know, it feels like discovering is going to have a target in every game. But will have a target in the battle that you're actually fighting now, you know? Or is one of the maybe six cards you've got in your hand going to be dead in that battle? This is a whole thing about how many attachments do you play in your deck and uh, you know, how many limited actions versus battle actions and that sort of thing. 
it's certainly a card that's worth consideration for military, uh, Phoenix military in particular. But it's not on top of my list of amazing cards because I think there are going to be times it's just dead, and having dead cards is not usually a recipe for winning games. I feel like the answer to how many attachments do you play in your deck is 10, although I have to admit I actually did not do the math on that. So I think it depends on the cost of them. If they're expensive ones, then 10-ish is about right. If they're cheaper ones, then 15 is fine, I think. But, uh, and obviously they're free, you know, free spells, say, in the Phoenix. But if you're playing sort of, you know, cheap followers or whatever, then I think 15 is a perfect reason one to play. Yeah. Spells. What are these spells of which you speak? <laughs> the blue cards. Those aren't great personalities. <laughs> I, I haven't seen those. I, uh, <laughs> I hear there are these... Are those those things that you put on the really expensive personalities that have no force? Pretty much, yeah. No, I've, I've been playing Phoenix Military uh, 3 Cotes, and two of them I've played my Yudimbo deck, which has one spell in it, Karnsworth spell, because that's a good spell. But you know, I'm mainly playing Samurai who go and hit you with things. And you know, the Yudimbo red cards are actually really quite solid. It's quite fun. I was playing against uh, Andrew's Dragon Kensai deck in uh, Colombia, and uh, he had a, a Kensai with two weapons and the Dragon Clan armor on. Yeah, eleven force or something total. Uh, and I you know, used a couple of Habanas to pump up on my Yajimbo and uh, you know, stood there with a thirteen force Yajimbo and just bowed for unassailable defense to kill his whole load of Kensai in one action. Uh, that was satisfying. So you know, there, there's definitely strong red cards out there for Yajimbos, and uh, you're playing those. There's not much space in your deck left to play spells. If you only had one spell, I'm assuming, yeah, you would not, you would not even be playing Ray Sensei. You're just playing the dudes. Nope, just playing the dudes out of a four gold box, which goes first most of the time. And occasionally I look at top three cards in my deck and just smile to myself. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, it actually does something for that deck. Because a lot of the cards in that deck are legal for Ivory 2, so, uh, when we start seeing what the Ivory 2 strongholds look like, I'm hoping that we have one that's useful for that sort of in there. How much do you think they're going to change things? I feel like they're in, I guess I feel like their intention was really kind of just to reprint the strongholds for the most part. But my speculation is that yeah, you know, you've got the whole library one. You see how strongholds work there. Some of the strongholds are undoubtedly working well. Other ones are not working so well. Um, I think there's a, a, a balance issue that's becoming increasingly apparent, which is that unicorn starting with five gold is a problem. So I'd be very, very interested to see the thing about that. I'm not sure what they can do about that, given that unicorn's five gold has been a thing for them you know, forever. But uh, that would be interesting. Again, it would be interesting to see if Lions stay with a three-gold box or whether they go up to four and have standardize everything at four gold. Given how important gold has been in, in uh, Ivory so far, you know, that's, that's stuff that I'd be very interested to see what happens when uh, come Ivory 2. Uh, obviously, you've also got the Crane box that received a rata and is now rather below the, uh, the average uh, stronghold strength, I guess. The Phoenix one, as mentioned, is just dead for certain decks. Uh, and definitely yeah, needs some improvement there. Um, but a lot of the other ones, I think, work really well. I mean, the crab one was, was really solid. The mantis one um, was pretty solid. And maybe some of the side B abilities need work. But, you know, th- I think this is a great opportunity for the, the team to just tweak strongholds that uh, are close to working perfectly and uh, completely throw away and, and redo the ones that, uh, that need it. I guess it's purely an elegance thing, but it will be kind of nice for the the dragon one. They should be able to get rid of the goofy language about out-of-clan monks. That would be nice. Because the uh, the coils of madness guys won't be in anymore. Yeah, I mean that's that's straightforward. Enough. I'd expect to see an Ivory two as well. I mean, sure, it means that an extended play, it's uh, it's very good. But uh, you know, I agree, that's a simplification that makes perfect sense in, in Ivory two. Yeah, I think they probably should just knock Unicorn down to four. They could remove the ability from the box, so at least then you know, like the ability you get for your Unicorn box is an extra gold, which is a pretty good ability. 
Yeah, no, I, I like that book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, let's see. Well, before I launch back into my ice bottle questions, is there anything that you wanted to make sure to point out about the coming storm or what's in the coming storm or what you think, how do you, do you think the environment is going to shift? Uh, I think the, uh, yeah, I talked a bit about the old way of defending an ivory and how that just doesn't work anymore with cavalry escort uh, seeing play. I think that the sort of defense that has proven to work well, even in the first weekend, is a much more robust defense. We actually stand in front of people and try and you know, win battles on the defense. That's been quite a difficult thing to do in Ivory so far because of the reserve rule, uh, which helps attackers hugely, and line existing with two actions they use in the attack, um, which puts you on the back foot as a defensive deck right from the start. But we're certainly seeing cards that, that help support that. I mean, defending the city was one that James played in his Phoenix deck, uh, which is you're defending guys at plus one force for each of their attachments, which looked quite sort of innocuous until you consider a, a spell deck like you know, Tamori or Phoenix Honor. Uh, or even Kitsune, where you've got guys with sort of, you know, four defensive spells loaded on them, and suddenly they're actually, you know, your three-force Jigenja becomes seven-force, and with four useful actions on him, he's actually quite a pain to deal with. Um, so that sort of thing, the whole idea of just building a Shigenja on a deck that can kill more stuff, uh, or bow more stuff, or just stop your opponent from, from beating your army, uh, rather than running a province strength to, to protect you. That definitely seems to be a, a theme that we're seeing in, in TCS, and that's good to see, I mean, you know, as I said, it was a little frustrating trying to defend in Ivory Edition, and best strategy was not to in the end. And it's good to see that in uh, in TCS, opposed battles on the defense seem to be working out better for people. Um, Although there certainly is not a uh, a dearth of guys with reserve in TCS. No, indeed. And uh, yeah, the whole balance of attack versus defense is actually a really tricky thing to get right to the game design perspective, I think. Yeah, the, the, the player that goes first has an additional limited phase worth of gold, and with reserve, they can effectively have a dynasty phase worth of gold sometimes on the attack. But the defender gets to go first, uh, and that is sometimes important. And, of course, by attacking, you overextend yourself, and uh, actually, if you wouldn't come in, you back. And so that whole thing of you know, how much do you commit to the attack is a difficult thing to, to, to balance right. I mean, I think it's good for the game when attacking is easier, because that makes for a more dynamic game. Games where both sides are sitting back and either side can afford to attack, just... Yeah, they go nowhere. They end up in draws, and that's not good for anyone. Yeah, the game basically doesn't work if you can't attack. Yeah, exactly. So you have to make attacking you know, attractive, but then you've got the problem of how do you make a defensive only deck work? Well, the obvious answer is to print cards like Defending the City, which say they can only be used on defense. So if you're playing a deck that's purely defensive, you have a few more edges compared to a normal military deck that's defending rather than attacking. Yeah, you know, it, it became pretty clear to me pretty early on in testing Ivory Edition that you don't defend against Lion unless you're desperate. Uh, if you're playing military, you just you prefer to trade provinces with them rather than stand in the way of their army. Uh, and of course, a lion often play dragon tricks to try and force you to defend against them, but you know, you're trying to avoid it as the, as the other player. Uh, if you're playing a defensive deck, you have to stand in their way, so you need something to, to balance that out and to you know, give you a chance to be able to do that reliably. Okay, so Phoenix Honor, you've certainly tried that. One of the things that I know Jay has disliked about that is he doesn't feel like he has enough guys to bow. Like, I have to bow a guy for the favor, and then I have to bow a guy for my box, and then where are my defenders coming from? Uh, do you think that the Sapoon in this set is of any sort of help with that, or is that deck just... Well, it's not, it's not a Gendra, it, it, it's absolutely the answer to that. I mean, you can now play six Shigenja who straighten themselves. Yeah, okay, you can't pretend back out, but she's still worth playing. And she's a 40 air Shigenja, and that's, that's definitely valuable. I've found that playing Phoenix these days with six straightening personalities, I'm not worried about bowing my guys for this or that. I think what Phoenix R lacks right now is an engine. If you look at the other decks out there, they all have 
an obvious way of just gaining honor built into their personalities or, or structure. I think Phoenix Honor doesn't. The best one they've got is if you stick seeking the way on Genma, you can attack, cavalry sleeves into an empty province, bow Genma to send himself home and gain two honor, straighten him on your opponent's turn, and then have him over with events as well, and use that seeking the way to gain two honor on both sides of the turn. As soon as he dies, of course, <laughs> that goes away. But uh, that sort of engine is, is one that, you know, that, that single engine on its own is enough to make, you know, uh, make the, the game go at a reasonable pace for a Phoenix Honor deck if it stays alive and, and keeps going. See, now they need to reprint, was it Asako Juru, or, right, wasn't that the old combo? Juru was the guy who shut people down. No. Oh, hmm. There was, a, right, there was a monk who, when Seeking the Way was around the first time, who would react when you did a spell to gain two on or something, so you could be like, I'm Seeking the Way and gain four. Right, no, I wasn't playing at that point, I think. But yes, uh, that, that would be quite nice. But that's the thing, I mean, you James might have to win a Kote with it, so it clearly works. No, but uh, it's a little bit he won Kote by basically saying, I'm going to abandon the honor match entirely and just say, if anyone else is playing honor, well, they're going to be faster than me and I'm going to lose. But no one else will play honor because it isn't very good right now, so I'll probably get away with it. And he did. Yeah. And then, you know, that, that deck will do that job perfectly effectively. It can defend well. It's got some tricks to, to accelerate it if they come off. And uh, it can play a lot of spells that do a lot of nasty things. Yeah. Hasn't that kind of been the, the tactic you have to take if you're playing, if you want to play honor and you're not crane, just be like, I'm gonna roll, get rolled if I play Crane Honor, and there's one really good card for Shigen Honor in the set for beating Crane, which is a spell that Look into the Soul, exactly, and learns on again by half your Shigenja Chi, and you know, Phoenix are not short on four Chi Shigenja. Um, so if you're saying that on in every turn, for every copy of that spell you have out, your opponent's getting two less Honor, that's a pretty good leveling f- uh, factor there. Particularly if you also have Fate Manipulation in Phoenix, and therefore you can multiple copies that spell out pretty quickly. Yeah, I saw that, and it made me think, like, I wonder if this will get used the most for what it, what it clearly seems to be intended to be used for, which is a Shugenja honor deck giving them a tool to fight against courtier honor, or if it would end up primarily being used in some sort of scorpion dishonor control hybrid, like, right, we've already got Shugenja in for touch of death or something. Ah, now you can put this in as, as another honor squishing tool. Actually, goes better in my Phoenix Dishonor deck, which already has a whole bunch of, of Shigenja with 14 in it, so I can just throw that stick in. There you go. Uh, I'd probably play, you know, take out um, Faint Praise, which does the same thing once, and the spell does it repeatedly. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely playable for, for Dishonor as well. Uh, the thing is that most Dishonor decks just have so many tools, they don't need that one. We talked about where the Scorpion earlier. I mean, if you're playing Scorpion, you play that, and therefore you're, you know, you're causing six points of loss um, against a, an Honor deck, or even eight points of loss against an Honor deck. Uh, just off one card. Yeah, they. I, I found it interesting. They have so many tools. There are. I, I had not noticed this until I was putting together the deck list. There were a healthy number of Scorpion Dishonor decks that did not. That just didn't play their clan holding. Yeah. Uh, there are so many good tools for them. And, you know, it's like okay, we've got Exquisite Soapworks. I've got Brilliant Cascade, and then I have to have JPI to fetch Brilliant Cascade. And Drum is caught to straighten my courtiers. So they can do more things. Small-time bully to dishonor people and enter play. Yeah, there's, there's even space, even for Nexus of Lies in a, in a Scorpion Dishonor deck. Never mind the clan holding. And clan holding is distant third in terms of uh, choices of cards you put into that deck if you have a few more slots opened up. Yeah. Hazard um, Disgrace, for example. I'm not even sure the space for Hazard Disgrace in it, despite it being a really good card for the deck. I'll bet when they were designing Armed Rice Farmer, they were not thinking, you know when where this is going to get played? Dishonor decks. <laughs> 
Well, I've only one of cheap, expendable presents. Yeah. It's a couple individually. So, do you think Bookkeeper is just going to... Re- I mean, I, I have not really examined the deck list from last time, so maybe the answer to this is just obviously yes. Is Bookkeeper just going to replace Deep Harbor, you think? People seem to really like Bookkeeper. Not an obvious replacement. Well, it is an obvious replacement, but that's not, not necessarily an automatic one. It depends on what your goal scheme is. So, we talked about the 4 for 4 goal scheme earlier, and Bookkeeper is obviously the right choice for that one, because turn two, you're going to be buying eight more gold, and you know, you're going to be doing the same start every time. So the fact that Bookkeeper is slow to start with doesn't make a difference, because you'll get to use it for its full effect by, the, by a few turns in. Uh, I think if you're playing a more explosive potential goal scheme, where you're playing in clan holdings and, and two-cost holdings, there the Deep Harbor is perhaps still better, because being able to get that extra holding that turn earlier means that potentially you're buying you know, three holdings turn two rather than two. You know, or four instead of three, depending on what, exactly what holds your thing. And that can make a big difference in terms of what, how much gold you end up with on turn three or turn four. And the bookkeeper is a slower, more steady, more consistent card. But if you're trying for explosive starts, you're trying to just get as much gold out of it as possible, Deep Harbor may still be a better choice. After basically not being there, except for poorly placed garden, we, we actually have fortifications in TCS. Do you do you see anything playable in the fortifications stuff? Uh, yes. So I, I'm actually really surprised in Old New Orleans when I was playing there last weekend how many people were playing fortifications. But you know, given the themes about defense that we've just talked about, where defensive decks are trying to stand there with armies, fortifications are no more of an auto loss than losing a battle with your army is going to be anyway. You know, if you're dead defend with you know, three loaded Shigenja, say, and try and keep your opponent from taking your provinces, it doesn't matter whether you're on 15 honor or 35 honor if they kill your army, because you're not coming back from that situation. Similarly, with fortifications, all you're doing there is are basically saying, if you take this province, I'm going to lose production and lose resources, as well as losing the province. So in a normal, traditional defensive deck, where you know the goal is basically to have one province left when you cross 40 or cross your opponent to minus 20 at the end of the game, fortifications are pointless. In the sort of emerging style defensive deck, where actually we're going to try and keep three provinces for most of the game. You know, your opponent's probably going to sleeve one off early, something like that, and you're going to survive on three and see that through to the end. And if at any point you lose one province, the other one's just going to die the following turn because your army's gone, you can't defend. In that sort of world, fortifications are actually entirely sensible. I'd say particularly um, gaining one honor off fortification uh, compared to the other honor gain holdings, where you've got completely victory, but it costs one more gold for a non-fortification version of the same ability. Um, but that, that concept, I think, is, is probably the strongest one of the, uh, the fortifications in the set. I want to like Tunnel Network. I don't think it's playable. It's, it's a slot that doesn't either produce gold or give you a, a personality to attach things to. So, as, as nice as it looks, I think that's not going to see play. And the, uh, the other one raises your province strength, I think, which, again, I, I think that's less useful because of the reason we just talked about, that if you're defending with your army and lose your army, it doesn't really matter what your province strength is. Okay. A couple of individual things. Okay, so Kiko, I think, is in this. It's one of several armors we have now that I look at that, I'm like, okay, so I get plus one personal honor, a tiny force bump, and a bad ability. Am I missing something about what's up with these armors that aren't ominous armor? So, the the cute thing about those ones is if you're playing an armor pack, and you're placing things out, you can attach the armor to your personality before proclaiming them, and gain the extra personal honor off the proclaim. Their abilities are mainly fear effects, and all fear effects, in fact. 
So you're playing a defensive fear-based deck. I can certainly see you know, potential there for those armors. That's quite a niche use. Um, so I didn't expect them to see a lot of play. But that is a, a potential one. Uh, the other area where I've seen those armors played is Lion. Uh, they have a lot of abilities to kill personal armor, and strongholds, for example, and increasing your personal armor and getting a small fear effect that you can combo with the fear effects on your guys already uh, can actually be quite good. I and mean, they've got people with sort of fear 2 and fear 3 effects. And be able to stack that with a fear 2 or fear 3 off an armor it means you can start hitting some quite big things. Particularly now that uh, Lion have a guy who creates cat followers, or a girl who creates cat followers, technically. You know, they can play armors and things, not worry so much about getting shot in the face, because they can uh, create followers themselves to protect them. So, my clan has Kensei, so I pay more attention to weapons than I should. And it clearly, there was a design change in weapons as you hit Ivory Edition. Not, not just Ivory Legal, but Ivory Edition itself. I guess I'll say it seemed obvious because it ended up being right. I mean, it, it was obvious, and I'm, sometimes I'm wrong about things that seem obvious, but, you know, it seemed obvious going in that, you know, your weapons are going to start with things like Family Sword and Justice of the Crane that were printed with these appealing stats that weapons in Ivory Edition just were not printed. And I think the numbers bore that out. The, I think the four most commonly played weapons, none of them were from Ivory Edition. It was Family of the Sword. Family Sword, Justice of the Crane, Cone Staff, and uh, Kalumped Giac. I don't even know how to pronounce that. Uh, Lost Maharaja is also seeing a lot of play. Well, that I was actually a little surprised to just not see that at all in the top decks, really. So I guess with that in mind, what do you think about the the weapon lineup in TCS? And one of the ones that I, I was specifically thinking about, it's like, well... Bow of Ritual Blessings, you know, you'd you'd look at that and you'd like, well, that you'd think that that could be good, but it reminds me an awful lot of Lost Blade of the Maharaja. It doesn't actually seem to be a good idea to play Lost Blade of the Maharaja. Yeah, plus two chi is, is a lot better than plus one chi, though. It's a high focus guard, four focus guard, I think, is not the best. There's two big weapons. One, uh, the Nathan Alpha is Destined, and one is the Bow with a Barrage on it. It also can bow anything, I think, whereas the other one is, uh, is, is force restrained. Yeah, it's a it, it's a it's a stronger ability, and you get an extra chi for only one more gold or whatever that's worth. And being two hundred, I believe. So yeah, I mean it's 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 solid package. The two chi is significant in an environment where duels are powerful. Yeah, I mentioned earlier that you know, weaknesses close become one of the design of two of the stronger actions in the environment. Being able to make your guy up to sort of five, six, seven chi is is pretty impressive. And that's you know, definitely through protection, but also lets you duel offensively when dueling Kensai's, I think. So, I mean, they're not exciting, they don't, don't like anything on fire, but they're solid choices, and uh, I'm sure they'll see some play. Ironically, I'm not sure Kensai is really the right place for two-handed weapons. Kensai, of course, can attach two one-handed weapons, but only one two-handed weapon, so, yeah, is that is that really a Kensai card? Well, perhaps not. It might just be a, a big, solid card for, well, let's say Mantis Ogres, for example. If they're keen to get even more chi and uh, make their duels even more uh, powerful. Yeah, I, I think the surest way for a, to make design-wise, the surest way for them to label a weapon as something that requires two hands is for it to give plus two chi. It's definitely going to be something that flavor-wise they then put the two-handed keyword on. They're they're not giving you plus two chi on a weapon that's not two-handed or or hardly ever. Interesting. You're not going to be uh, relying on people saying that to stop people from believing. Yeah. They- 
they, they don't want the idea of I will be by 40 plus two this and I'm going to win this duel so not even bother focusing. Yeah, they want duels to actually be things you could lose. Um, and that's, uh, that's a good defense team. It's, uh, and then there's Kakita Beret in this set. He caused a little bit of a fuss amongst <laughs> some players. All right, so he's the crane guy who gets to ignore your opponent's weapons. Absolutely. So my thing with him is, with Unsettling Gathering the Environment, I think he's needed, because it's very hard to play a defensive deck that uses attachments, non-spell attachments at least. People tend to steal them. So he means that you can ensure you can actually deal and defend, even if you can't play weapons in the deck. So you know, I, I like him from that perspective, but I can't wait for Unsettling Gathering to leave the environment and, uh, and that, not to be necessary anymore. At that point, he just becomes, well... It's a nice trick, and it's a pain for Kent's how to deal with, but you know, there are other cards that are painful for Kent's how to deal with. You know, Daidoji Ojiru, for example. Oh, look, you're a 7-4 Kent's side. Well, me and my buddy are both now 7-4s. You know, that sort of thing is it's already out there. You already have cards you have to play around. Everyone has cards you have to play around in every matchup, so, you know, why should Kent's side be different? I guess the complaints that, I'm, that I remember that I saw about them weren't from Kent's side players. It was from people who saw... Weapons that give you chi as a way of of doing meta against dueling decks, and and then Kikita Beret is then counter meta against that. And for him and problem solved, you know. <laughs> I think it it probably I think goes both ways, which is to me, people who are playing dueling decks will always complain about somebody they can't duel. And my position has always been, like, look, if you literally cannot deal with a guy without dueling him, you deserve to lose. I, you know, you, yeah. you know you've got to build your deck so it does something else. And you get to have other answers to people you can't deal with, and one or the other. Your choice. Yeah, kind of the same. I'm trying to think, what if there's what other systematic things? Do you think that there's uh, they're actually going to print enough poison stuff to make a uh, Chi Death deck playable? Chi Death's already a nice supporting strategy. It's another way of getting people. I don't know whether it'll ever become a, a viable deck in its own right. Time will tell, I guess. I imagine probably not. But uh, it's it's nice to have more ways of killing people. Uh, you know, we start out the environment with basically duels, range attacks, melee attacks. Thought of sacrifice. That's about it, really. <laughs> Akura is released to turn a fear effect into a kill effect. Yeah, having more interesting ways of killing people so that you can't just you know, play a couple of cards and measure everything uh, is, a, is a, good, uh, uh, a good approach, I think, design-wise. And making all those one-chi guys actually have a real cost to them uh, is also a good thing. Yes. Okay, so I I have more individual cards I could randomly ask about, but we've been going for a while, and I don't know if any... It's really important to talk about whether or not, it, you know, there's a reason to try to play a Koma Shungo instead of Matsu Ryohei for your cavalry reserve slot in your lion deck. So let's just skip that. And anything else you want to get out there about TCS or L5R or the environment before we sign off? Well, just continue the theme of weapons for a second. That's one weapon I am looking forward to seeing you know, how much play it gets and, and whether it's uh, seriously impacting the environment. And that's Tested Blade, which is the one that does a fair effect equal to your chi that goes through followers. And followers are a strong strategy right now, and it would be interesting to see if people start pairing that with the courier's released to try and uh, cut through the uh, you know, swarms of enslaved gins and frontier farmers that are uh, Come across the back of the board you. I feel like Tested Blade got played in one of the dragon decks that did well last weekend, but I could be misrecalling. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't surprise me. So, yes, I, I did like that, that you had Tested Blade and Untested Blade. Mm-hmm. And good flavor text. I like the flavor text on that. Untested Blade, 
the scorpion's going on about like, oh, I wouldn't want to get your blood on my kimono, and then Tested Blade, he's killed the lion, and the flavor text is like, oh, look at that! I'm glad that matches my kimono perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's great! But blood, yeah, blood actually goes with this. Who knew? Who knew? It's great. I do feel like they are doing better than they used to with having individual cards flavor-wise work with each other, like between the keywords and the flavor text and, and what the card does. I like that the the Kikita Jester has the the ability where you know you gain honor or you can make them lose honor if they attack a fortification, and then it's got the flavor text about, oh, look at you, mighty warrior, kicking over gardens and shrines, because, of course... You know, the shrine and the gardens, those are going to be the fortifications that an honor deck is playing with. No, and I think it's back to the point I was making earlier about more joined upness between uh, the different parts of the AG. It's good to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what I, I guess I would still like to see a little bit more long term stuff like that. I was thinking, you know what would be cool if you had things like watermarks or different borders on personalities or strategies if they related to supporting Seiken or supporting Shibatsu, that might be harder to do now that you don't have the clan keywords on personalities. Uh, you can't... If you take a guy and you replace the... Uh, and you replace the watermark on his text box or, like, change his color, you're getting close to players having difficulty, I guess, identifying what clan it is. I mean, it's still going to be up there on the title bar, but... Yeah, I mean, if, the thing about some stuff is... Yeah. Given the problems they've had with printers over the last few years, do you really want to make it any more complex to print this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> That's my first objection. So, uh, uh, if you had four or more Shadowlands cards in your deck, it was corrupt, and one to three was tainted, and that meant something. Um, and that, that was a, as an important sort of consideration, do you want to take care or not? The whole Jade Hand movement was born out of that, which created a lot of uh, interaction in the community, I guess. Uh, and it's good to see sort of see signs of going back towards what's played in your deck mattering, but uh, the whole structure of that, that lent and the whole idea of creating sides there. I think you're right. I think there's, there's more they could be doing here with this whole second Shabatsu thing about does your deck support second Shabatsu? It's not just which wind you're using uh, as your favorite token, but actually have something more uh, uh, explicit in there. Yeah, of course. And I can see part of the problem that they have with with some of the things that they it would be cool if they do is that, right, they don't know the outcome, right? In, in sort of an ideal marketing world, in whatever set it was that was going to come out in, you know, September of 2015 or whatever, when we're going to, let's say that's when we know, it, you know, we're going to find out whether it's Seiken or Shibatsu or whoever wins this, you'd print a set and then there would be a card, there would be cards in there about it, except they can't because they have to lock it down six months prior and you're not going to find out until a month before the set comes out when there's a tournament somewhere. Oh. And I could see that the same thing, right? You'd have, uh, you know, the, your clan, they they decide, oh, well, maybe this clan will like Shibatsu more and so they'll print a bunch of Shibatsu bordered guys for your clan and then the those, the player base will end up hating him, and they'll be all pissed about it. And and so, what if you guess wrong, or and I mean not guess, but estimate wrong? You know, there's I guess there's there's backfire potential because we we all five our players are finicky, finicky, finicky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, on those lines, the Fudo versus Panku challenge with the Gencon, yeah, that's come up a year ago now, and uh, we still haven't seen uh, sort of Fudo surviving into. Uh, uh, into Ivory Edition, as we promised. 
Um, I don't think TCS is a single Fudo card in it, for example. I don't recall seeing one. Um, and that, yeah, so, so how is that being shown? Well, the obvious thing to do would be to have a Fudo Sensei somewhere, but when was that, when would that get printed? You know? If that was after Gen Con was over, then you'd expect it to be coming out sort of in this set or the next set, I guess. So, I'm absolutely okay with some more Fudo stuff showing up because if some, you know, if they start showing some more Fudo monks showing up again, then they can print a card of like Kitsuki Hirumi stabbing them. <laughs> that would be awesome. You, you like the whole Fudo storyline in terms of if you like opposing it. Um, it would be nice if it was out there. I mean, you know, they wanted the challenge to survive. It would be nice if people could show allegiance to the Fudo cult and uh, actually try and, uh, and spread that. You know, I'm sure some people will step up and do that and uh, some of you would have fun playing against them. Creating those sorts of mini-stories is a, is, a, is a good part of the game. I mean, if, I, if I look at the way I ran the Knoxville Coto this year, I tried very hard to make more games matter than just the people who are playing the finals with the sort of the distribution of prizes and things I was doing. So I did a Bushy League tournament where if, you, if your deck was, was Bushy League rules, you're playing the main event still, and the person who does best with a Bushy League deck gets one of the prizes, and uh, the person who got the most might in the literature gets another prize, that sort of thing. The idea of doing that is to say, even if you're not trying to play, you know, the top card, the top deck with all the best cards in it and try to play the best game you can at the top level, you can still have games that matter because you'll be playing the prizes, still be trying to win things. The whole idea of things like, you know, Fudo versus not Fudo, I can certainly see um, people wanting to play Fudo, not to try and win events for Fudo, but to try and represent Fudo, try and achieve things for Fudo um, or against it um, you know, within the construct of tournaments. Uh, I think that the more of those sorts of subplots you have, the more ways you've got of engaging players, and meaning that in a tournament of 50 players, more players are playing for something than just you know, the top of time competitions, which yeah, is a good start, absolutely, uh, and obviously the overall overall win. I think of the 16 rings I had made for prizes, or 15 rings I had made for prizes, I think uh, 12 or 13 different people walked away with rings. So you know, I only had, what, 40 people at the Cote, so just, over, just under a third of the people walked away with one of, the, one of their special prizes. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the thing I'm aiming for, is just sort of, this is a great game, it's a lot of fun to play this game right now. Right? It's probably more fun playing off of all than I've ever had. Equally, at the competitive level, not much innovation has happened in terms of the way we do tournaments. Um, and Janine's had some good ideas there, but it's all about, still, you know, we've got one winner. You know, we're looking at deck lists of the top two. You know, those are the people who are actually impacting things. Okay, can we Can we do more interesting things at lower levels to... Uh, yeah, to mean more people are playing for something when they go to a major event. Um, that's, that's what I'm thinking at the moment. Yeah. What can we do there to, to make that better? Yeah, that's hard for probably for the company to do because, of course, they, they can't make it, not really make it story pertinent because they, they just couldn't handle that. I mean, I, I mean, more than they did. I guess this year, at least they did that. Like, you did actually get something for showing up, right? Your clan did get a point, at least. So there was a at least some inbuilt reason, uh, right? There's there's top of clan stuff that's always kind of inherent an inherent way to compete with it. You could you could switch to some funky system where uh, the cut is just top player of each clan, give you a little incentive not to bandwagon onto you know Crane or whatever. All that sort of thing, I think I think is sensible to have to consider. I mean, the Bushy League one is another one. You know, do, you, do you define what Bushy League is? And I know Malik Falls is fading out at the end of the year. That should be easier to do for next season. Um, and then you could, you know, as part of the prize kit, as well as having the full strongholds top of plan, whatever they do next time around, uh, they could have a prize for the top rank, but you push player and formally support that. 
and just to try and encourage more ways for, particularly for newer players, to compete in events and feel that they're actually uh, uh, they're in a chance of winning something and achieving something. And the other contest is, is, is a good you know, established thing for doing that. Um, it's not all one of the contests are ones that are run for everyone to attend. I, I do like it. Obviously, the other contest is up to the TO to determine how they do it. The rule being you, you can't be L5R. And some of them are, you know, entered by two-thirds of the field. Others are entered by three people. And sort of, you know, I, I'd like to see the honor contest be something that is, by default, more than half the players in the tournament enter the honor contest. Again, more participation, more ways for people to win stuff, uh, and less ways for people to feel they just turned up the tournament, sat through five, six, seven rounds, and then went home. They want the games to matter, you know? I feel like the only honor contest that I've... I know I've done this, but the only honor contest I remember where you actually had more than half of the field participate was trivia. And, and partially that's because I, I really do think if, if you want that many people to, to participate, it has to be something that you can do without any prep work at all. Because... Yeah, they think they've done well this season. Um, so Love Letter obviously was a major thing for... Well, that's right. You're, yeah, that's right. You're, uh, you're haiku, people... You get, you get a lot of people doing that. The ones here in Oxford, we get certainly more than half the tournament attending those, usually. Love Letter, I think, was, was certainly averaging more than half the, the players playing Love Letter. Uh, the uh, fancy L5R ones that the Northeast guys do and DC guys do, uh, where you're picking which guys are going to do best in Swiss, and then at the end of Swiss, you, you work out what everyone's total rankings is, and use your own performance as a tiebreaker if need be. Uh, that's another one that everyone can enter, and uh, yeah, more than half of people usually do. There is a countervailing thing there, there too, right? The upside of having something like that is that, well, anybody can enter. The, the downside is that you've now foregone the part of the honor contest that is rewarding somebody who's really into L5R but isn't very good at the CCG, right? Not a lot of people enter because it takes a lot of work, but that means, you know, when somebody's coming in with a really cool costume or some really cool art presentation or something that they've put a lot of work into, we can reward this fanatic uh, L5R person. Yeah, but the flip side is if someone enters the same piece of art at several cocktails and wins several other prizes, is that really what we want to see? Uh, I believe that's happened this season. The problem with doing that is that you know, because you've got such a small pool of people entering, you know, that one piece is likely to win multiple times. Um, just simply because, you know, if it's the best of three in one event, it may well be the best of three in another. If you had 10, 15, 20 entries, the chance of it being the best one subjectively in the, the opinion of two pounds of judges is uh, a lot lower. Yeah, I, ideally, I, I think that if you were doing events like that, you would, right, whatever it is, it would have to be something that you did, and it would have to be something that, like, you did for this, not just something you're trotting out over and over again. Although, uh, unfortunately, I think, I think that when I've done that, I basically have to go the other direction, which is just don't have those restrictions because there's no possible way you could enforce them. Uh, so you just have to say, we're going to do a story. It's it's better if you wrote it, but I have no way of checking that. So I don't think you need to enforce it if the numbers are big enough because if enough people are there, an artist objected, you know, the chance that you as the Atlanta organizer and your team pick one of 20 as being your best and that in the next tournament in Columbia or in Oxford or whatever, you know, a different panel of judges from a different set of 20, including that same uh, piece, pick that same piece again, it's a much lower chance. 
if there's three people, four people, five people entering, the chance of duplicate is a lot higher. But and here I was thinking that preferences in art were purely objective. Oh, <laughs> oh my my bubble has been burst. Oh, I'm very sorry. <laughs> you better be. I think, I think there's a lot more we can we could talk about on on tournament structure and things, but uh, that's a, a much larger subject, I think, than. Uh, Yes, not not a subject for today. You know what? You can you can put your thoughts into words, and then uh, you can contribute to strangeassembly.com. You can we can have a byline by James Donathorn Tate. Wow, isn't he swell? You'll, I mean, it's it's a <laughs> it's a great honor, I think, for for any L five R player to meet our rigorous publishing standards, which consist largely of submitting it and having it be in English. <laughs> uh, I think that's that's probably about it. It probably should avoid the discussion of whether or not I am more like a Nazi or a member of the KKK when I talk about the Spider Clan. But other than that... So basically I should submit to spider strategy articles and deck lists and things and uh, try to get as much spider content on the site as possible. Is that what you're saying? Perfectly fine to have spider content on the site. Face before it goes live? (laughs) I just... No, well, I, I have to say I... I did briefly think about whether or not I should, in writing the decklist analysis, do the whole Daigatsu Kanpeki the Shadow Trader thing, except really, like, I did it once because it amused me. If I did it again, I would be doing, I actually would just be doing it to be spiteful to the people it irritated and griped about it the first time, and that's a bad reason to do something. (laughs) So, I, I don't know. You know, I have my opinions, and I'm going to express my opinions, and if I felt that I could not express my opinions about L5R and the world and whatnot, then this would not be entertaining, and I wouldn't do it. Sure. But, on the other hand, I I don't really feel like getting flamed all the time. So, like, like you're talking about the Fudo thing. That, that was actually something I... It, it had entered my mind to be like, well there's actually an anti-Fudo card. And I could go to a Kote, and like even though it's a bad idea gameplay-wise, I could play with three copies of the anti-Fudo card. But then, as soon as I published the deck list, I would get flamed because people would say that I was playing it to playing Purge of Fudo as in the Jack Spider. I think we talked about that in the uh, the last time I was on Strange Assembly, about uh, how the Fallen Dueling and you know, later Magis Ogres could cause people to put Magifudo's in their decks, and uh, that kind of accidentally screws the spider who aren't intended to target, which is unfortunate. But I would say that, because I've got a spider deck box with a deck in it sitting right next to the laptop right now. Uh, that's probably what's causing the interference you're hearing, actually, uh, is the spider trying to uh, infiltrate your computer over the, over the internet. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It is. It is. I, I, I do enjoy uh, railing on the, the Fudoists, though. Mm. I... I wanted Panku to win that, because, you know, I want Fudo to lose. Although it's not like either of them has done anything, it did anything interesting, ultimately. That seems to happen a lot with Gen Con things, doesn't it? There seem to be a number of those prizes that are just sort of, like, created for Gen Con. And the Fudo versus Panku thing, I think, just generally fed into the... It's like what happened with Forgotten Legacy, where you've got a... Direct a player, direct a player ish set, and so you've got a whole marketing thing around it. But that sort of that marketing thing is kind of detached from what the story team is really doing. 
with the story, so you make a big deal out of Panku versus Fudo, but it doesn't really matter. Or like with Forgotten Legacy, that that was promoted in such a way that people thought that pretty pretty much everybody thought the Dark Naga was going to be a big deal, and a lot of people thought that the Dark Naga was going to be the big bad for the arc. He's finally raising the second fifty. That's the Gen Con challenge booth this year. There's only like three slots for that or something at Gen Con, and they're all sold out. Like I, I don't know if there's something going on or really it's only like a handful of people get to do that. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of disappointed if that's really what it is, because I have been so waiting for raid decks <laughs> in L5R. Actually, what I should do, I should go see if I can figure out how to get to be one of the people playing the Naga deck. Yeah. yeah. Except that would probably make it way too easy for the uh, for the, the other players to play. Uh, Maybe you get some practice in first. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I'm going to get some practice in with the product that I will have never seen before. Yeah. It is, yeah. That uh, that's gonna. I mean, because theor- theoretically, that is the that should tend to favor the whoever the AEG person is who's piloting it. That uh, I, I guess maybe they'll release enough, but likely the the challengers will not know all the tricks that the the Dark Naga has up his sleeve. And once you've sort of figured out, once you've had the chance to play against that sort of deck, you kind of know what it is that they're trying to do. You can tweak your deck, you know, you know, not to overextend in this way or another because there's some big effect that's going to come up and bomb you, that sort of thing. But uh, I'm looking forward to that. I not, not specifically the challenge booth, but just the the siege product generally. I did notice that they branded that in such a way that they could do more than one of them. Yep. So that would be very cool. So it needs to sell well. That Remember, people, <laughs> when it comes out, go buy it. Buy another one and give it to your buddy. Well, I think I've edition sold out and they're well to get a reprinted version of it, so uh, I think the chance of the uh, raid deck not selling out is pretty low, I guess. Yes, that would be good. Go buy the raid deck. Make them do another <laughs> to get the raid deck. But, but just enough printings that they that they don't get left with a bunch of uh stock. So I don't know. And then everybody can look, excitedly look forward to when JPI rotates out so they don't have to go buy it. Yep. I think people forget sometimes that having chase rares is actually good for a CCG financially. They're like, AEG, you've got to reprint this. They're, it's an expensive card on the secondary market, whereas AEG is probably, not that they would say this internally, but that they'd be, you know, externally, but they're, they're probably internally going like, this is awesome! Yeah. <laughs> People want to buy packs of this just to open this card. That's great! <laughs> it's exactly what we want to see. No, uh, I was a little disappointed that your Lando code they were still handing out first half prize support, so uh, our group went home with, you know, a bunch more aftermath products, which, uh, given that was our like, sixth or seventh go of the season, I think sixth go of the season, uh, we had quite enough aftermath for that one. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, I mean, if if you'd like, I'm actually I'm personally actually still short a Jade Perlin, so you know if you've got some extras, you know, I'm, I'm I can give you I can give you my address. Just, just yeah, I, I've been selling all the aftermath stuff I got for half price for the last several events, so. Uh, I emptied my own stock of that. I might have a few boosters left over. Well, let me see if I can find them. Yeah. Oh no, no. That's. That, I mean, that's. That's usually what I. I do the. Uh, once you get into the Kote season, it's to the point where right, you already had to have the product to play with it. You just sort of look at it like, come on, Daddy needs a rare set to put on eBay. 
because <laughs> because you either want a rare set or a box. It's hard to sell like seventeen packs on eBay. I don't know. You can always find newer players who are quite happy to buy some half price bottle product. Cut is a good for that. But uh, I know Mel and Palmer were driving around the northeast uh, with a whole bunch of products in their trunk, going, "Hey, want to buy some alcohol?" You know, <laughs> shady peanut style. Yes, yes. You have to. You have to wear like a long coat and sunglasses and. And it looks like that, yeah. Psst, kid. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the crack. <laughs> <laughs> as long as they don't introduce mythic rares, I'm good. Yes, uh, and, and four copies of cards per deck. That too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, our decks are too small for that, frankly. There you go. I don't know. That, that could be the next thing they could do, right? Uh, go up to 60 cards in each deck. God's good hand off and up already. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that sort of is what it is. I don't think that the uh, the whole randomized resources is bad as some people think it is. And frankly, you really have plenty of ability to play with a gold scheme that will not gold screw you, or will like only gold screw you once every three cote or something. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate though that too many games are decided by bad second turn goals. I mean, I had two games in, in a firebrand curtain in New Orleans uh, last weekend where, uh, yeah, turn one I got one holding and turn two I got one holding. And that's sort of, when after your first 12 cards you've just seen two of your 20 holdings in the deck or 21 holdings, whatever I was running. I have 20 holdings. You know, it's, that's unfortunate when it happens two rounds in five. Even with my precious all the four gold holdings scheme, you really <laughs> want to have two of them by the, to buy on turn two. <laughs> so. Okay then, this, I think I, I tried to wrap it up like 20 minutes ago. Man, usually I'm the one, uh, keeping it going. 35 minutes ago, I think, because half past. Was <laughs> it? Ouch, ouch. Into a tournament structure after that one. <laughs> yes, but thanks for coming on. It was nice, uh, talking about TCS with you. Yeah, good stuff. Okay. I would be flabbergasted if you were not going to Gen Con. I am indeed going to Gen Con. Okay. We have our costumes and everything, and, uh, we're going to have a good time. There you go. Yeah, so I, I will see you at Gen Con. Hopefully, uh, as many of our listeners as possible will see all of us at, at Gen Con. I'll probably be the only guy there wearing a Strange Assemblies t-shirt since we don't sell them or something. I just have, like, <laughs> the, the, the three of us have our own. Hopefully, I'll be back to doing what I did several years ago and have uh, the little digital voice recorder to uh, get random man on the street. <laughs> Content. Although I was, what was I criticized about last time? Oh yes, I apparently spent too much time talking about food. <laughs> I think <it's> enough understandable. <laughs> so yes, and then I went to Steak and Shake again because it was three in the morning, and where else are you gonna eat? <laughs> so <laughs> what? Ah, <laughs> uh, but for now, you can check us out at strangeassembly.com. You can uh, download other podcast episodes there or subscribe. There or on iTunes, you can follow us. We're at Strange Assembly on Twitter. I always like to hear from you, so you can send me an email at chris at strangeassembly.com. But in, until then, for James Donathorn Tate, I'm Chris Stevenson, and you've been listening to Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.